Good morning. It is my distinct privilege and pleasure to uh, be here this morning uh, to bring to you the Word of God at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 18 this morning, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Glenn Pettit. I am down here from Alaska. My daughter had surgery a couple of weeks ago, um, and since she does not fly very well, we chose to stay here until after the post-op visit, which is tomorrow. Um, and the Kellys have graciously uh, allowed me to evict them out of their bedroom um, so I could have more floor space uh, for those. She came with a lot of stuff. Uh, she came down here with three big cardboard boxes, two big suitcases, a couple of smaller suitcases, one which had fish and moose in it. Um, uh, but there was a lot of stuff, so uh, they have graciously opened their home to me, and I thank them for that. And uh, Carl and I have known each other for... Man, I forget how many years it's been, like five or six years. They uh, moved uh, to seminary, at Master Seminary, from our church up in Alaska. So I've known Carl since uh, 2009, I think. Um, so it's been uh, a pleasure knowing him, and I thank, uh, thank him for giving me this opportunity to proclaim the Word of God this morning. So as we look at the book of 2 Corinthians, this is not, obviously, since it's 2 Corinthians, it's not the first book that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, which he was there for 18 months uh, ministering and among them. This is actually probably the third letter that he wrote. So he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, and in between the two, he wrote what in 2 Corinthians is called the painful letter. And this letter we do not have, um, so it is not part of the canon of Scripture. But in, So Paul writes this, this painful letter in between the two, and now he is writing the third letter. So the first letter to the Corinthians... Um, Man, I can't imagine what that second letter must have been. If it was painful, and you read 1 Corinthians and how, um, <laughs> what a tongue lashing he gave them in the book of 1 Corinthians, book of, the second letter he wrote to them must have been really, really painful to read. Uh, but in this third book that he writes to them, he is giving them, he is encouraging them. He is encouraging them with faith. It's no longer um, a harsh tongue lashing like the first two letters have been. It's now more of an encouraging book. Um, yes, there are still some exhortations, and yes, uh, they were still um, doing things that they should not have been doing, um, but it is more of an encouraging book. So I would like to uh, start by reading the entire uh, fourth chapter, just to kind of give us a little bit of background of where we're going in verses 14 through 16. So starting in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, 
but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who, are, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the clarity that you have given us in Scripture that has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, as we look today at the encouragement that Paul has given in the face of suffering, Lord, it is preparing us for an eternity with you. Lord, we ask that you would open your word to our hearts and our minds today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Corinthian church was living in the midst of a corruption in government and in the midst of persecution. Today in the United States, we don't really feel that persecution like they did, but in other countries around the world, even today, People are feeling that persecution. In fact, there are more martyrs in the 20th century than there had been for a long, long time in the history of the church. All around the world, people are dying for their faith. And in this chapter, Paul is giving an encouragement to those who are suffering persecution. He is giving an encouragement to those who are suffering, not just because of the curse of sin in the world, but because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And just because we haven't experienced this persecution for the last couple hundred years doesn't mean it won't happen to us. In case you haven't noticed, for those who have read the Bible cover to cover, the country of the United States of America is not named in Scripture. So just because we're here today doesn't mean we're going to be here 50 years, 100 years, 200 years from now. And the protections that we have enjoyed in this country may not always be there. And we can take heart, we can take heart the same way Paul did, the same way the Corinthians did, the same way other people have throughout the history of the Christian church, facing the persecution that they have faced. There is a lot of suffering that we see in the book of 2 Corinthians, and in a lot of Paul's writings, but particularly in this book. In fact, Paul starts the book of 2 Corinthians, verses 1 through 9, that says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Acacia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
and God of all comfort. So he's saying the God of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he's saying as we experience affliction, we are comforted by God and we are then able to go and comfort others who are also experiencing affliction and persecution. So we, through the experience of the comfort of God, are then able to comfort others when they go through trials in this life. For we, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Think of this. The Apostle Paul experienced persecution to the point where he said we were despaired of life itself. The Apostle Paul was persecuted to that point. And we'll cover a little bit later as he he catalogs his persecutions um, uh, in this letter. In chapter 4, 7 through 23, he said he was afflicted, crushed, perplexed, driven to despair, persecuted, struck down. In chapter 6, He says that they suffered afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger. In the chapter 11, he said that he suffered great labor, imprisonments, beatings, near death, shipwrecked three times, danger from rivers, Gentiles, wilderness, sea, false brothers, toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and cold. All of this Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel Throughout the Gentile world. If he suffered that, who says that we aren't suffering ourselves? And as we read in the the first chapter, it says that when we suffer, we are comforted by God. And as we are comforted by God, we are then able to comfort others who also suffer. I have personally experienced this uh, a couple of times. About four and a half years ago, uh, my, li- my wife and I lost one of our children. Uh, he is now in glory with our God. About a year and a half after that, one of the other members of our church also lost a daughter to leukemia. And we were, my wife and I, having not that long ago, walked through that same road, were able to then walk through that with them and giving them comfort and, and sharing with them that experience and comforting them with scripture and then not that long ago only about a month and a half ago or so a gentleman that i um, work with in trail life his son unexpectedly died he went to school in the morning and was dead by one o'clock in the afternoon and fortunately the members of our church who lost their daughter have a real good foundation having set um Levon is our senior pastor's sister-in-law. Um, so they've been sitting under great teaching for a very long time. They had a really good foundation of theology. 
my friend in trail life, unfortunately, does not have that same theological foundation. And so I was really able to come alongside of him and comfort him and give him good points in Scripture to go to, to encourage him to rely on the Word of God, not on the psychobabble that other people were pointing him towards. Um, fortunately, to, at least to some degree, he has listened and he's read the books of the Bible that I've, had, I've told him he should read through. He's read a couple of the books that I've given to him to read. Um, but we are able to walk through this life comforting other people as they experience those trials of life. But Paul here in this chapter, in the fourth chapter, says twice, in the beginning of the chapter and in the beginning of the passage for today, he says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? We do not lose heart because we serve a God who keeps his promises, who is faithful. He will do what he says he will do. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says that he declares the end from the beginning, that he will accomplish his purposes. My son going on to glory was not outside the control of God. It was in his sovereign plan. I may not know in this life the reason for that plan. But it was in a sovereign plan. As R.C. Sproul has said, there is not a single maverick molecule in the entire universe. Every single atom is under the sovereign control of God. And he will keep our promises. I'm going to use Aaron's favorite word from this morning. Chesed. God's covenant steadfast love. That he will fulfill what he has promised to do. And what does he promise to do as we were reading just a little bit earlier in the chapter? Christ. You know, God who raised Christ from the dead will also raise us to be with him. He has promised that. In Ephesians, it says that he has given the Holy Spirit as a seal of that promise. Romans chapter 8, he says that we will, that those he has called, he has justified, those he has justified, he has glorified. Not Notice, in Romans chapter 8, he doesn't say he will glorify. He has glorified. It's as sure and as certain as if it's already happened. Because he will fulfill his promise. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. The God who saved us, who began the work in us, will complete that work. We will walk through this life day by day, progressively growing closer to Christ as we walk in our Christian walk, as we are sanctified and conformed into his image, and at the day of our death, we are transformed. We are brought into glory, completely transformed, our body raised immortal, just as Jesus Christ was raised immortal. God will fulfill his promise. In Hebrews chapter 6, 17 and 18, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, what God has promised, it is impossible for God to lie. So when people ask you, well, if God can do all things, is there anything God can't do? Absolutely, there's things God can't do. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. 
because he cannot lie, he has promised us in his word, and he will fulfill those promises. So because he will fulfill those promises, we can take encouragement. We do not lose heart because we serve a faithful God. We serve a God who will fulfill what he has promised to fulfill. He will raise us up to life eternal if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. If we trust solely in his blood for our salvation, he will raise us up. So Paul here is essentially telling the the Corinthians, there is nothing this world can do to you in comparison to what awaits you. There's absolutely nothing this world can do to you. Jesus told, uh, Jesus said in the Gospels, do not fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can what? Kill the body and the soul. We do not need to fear those people around us. We need to fear God. See, this heaven and earth will one day be gone. Everything that we have, all of our possessions, our buildings, our houses, our cars, everything, whether it's today or a thousand years from now, will one day be completely destroyed. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, this heaven and earth will one day burn in fire. But the word of God will last forever. Our souls will last forever. Every single person who's walked on the face of the earth will be in eternity. The question is, where? Will you be in heaven enjoying the glory and the presence of God the Father? Or will you be in hell experiencing his eternal wrath? See, Paul had his share of persecutions, and he, and he contrasts the difference between this temporal world and the eternal that is to come. You, we see contrasts all the way down through Second uh, Corinthians four, four and five, chapters four and five. He contrasts the outward man to the inward man. He contrasts wasting away to being renewed. He contrasts the slight, momentary afflictions to beyond measure. He contrasts the momentary of our afflictions to the eternal glory. And he contrasts the affliction to the glory. What can be seen, what cannot be seen. And in chapter 5, he goes through and he lists that our body is, he calls it a tent-like house. And then he contrasts that to our glorified body, which he calls a building from God. He contrasts the earthly with the heavenly And that which is destroyed, our earthly body, to that which is eternal, our glorified body. He contrasts being stripped naked to being clothed. He contrasts mortality with life. And then finally, he contrasts that home in the body here on earth to a home with the Lord when we depart this earth. You see, our flesh is momentary. This flesh, this body will eventually cease. It will eventually stop. See, back in Paul's day, 
people thought of afflictions in the body, sickness, illness, death, whatever, it was a judgment from the gods. You know, Zeus was mad at you. You got struck down by a bolt of lightning. You know, Hermes was mad at you, so something else happened. It was a judgment of God. And we even see this in the Pharisees, don't we? John chapter 9. The man born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? His blindness was a judgment of God. That was their viewpoint. And that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is not saying that when we suffer in this world, that we are suffering a judgment of God. I mean, Paul himself, the apostle, had a viper in Acts chapter 28, had a viper bite him when he was on the island of Malta on his way to Rome. What was the assumption of the islanders? He must be a really wicked man because even though he was shipwrecked and he lived on the island, God's not going to let him get away with it. He was just bitten by poison and say he's going to die. What happened? He lived. Nothing happened to him. It was not a judgment of God. But what did that experience bring? An opportunity for the gospel. He was able then to preach to the people on that island. So when we suffer, it is not necessarily a judgment of God, although it can be. Think of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They dropped dead. Direct judgment of God. Okay, So it could be, but not necessarily. And there are some people even today that teach that if we're suffering anything, um, you know, if you're not rich, if you're not healthy, if you have any physical ailment, it's because you don't have faith. Because if you had enough faith, you could heal, you could be healed, you could be wealthy. You know, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. For quite a while, I've wanted to get a T-shirt printed for for a couple of my kids to wear. You know, Sarah and uh, one of my other boys, Caleb, is highly autistic, and you can see it on him when he's walking around. He doesn't look and act normal. I've always I've wanted to get a T-shirt and print it up that says, "Hey Benny, heal this." You know, that's not the perspective that God teaches in His Word. Things happen for a reason, for his purpose. And his purpose is not so some guy can get rich making millions of dollars off of people, giving them false hope and a false faith. You see, as Paul says, our outer body is wasting away. It's a proven fact. Ten out of ten people die. I hate to break it to you, but you started dying the day you were born. We will eventually die. Our body is wasting away. I can personally attest to that through multiple surgeries I've had. It doesn't work as well as it used to. I've got pain 24-7 in my neck because I have two herniated discs in my neck. My body is degenerating. My glorified body will never do that. Will never do that. It will last forever. You see... We suffer sickness, we suffer illness, we suffer disabilities, we suffer injuries in this body. But no matter what we suffer in this life and in this body, do not lose hope. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be raised, resurrected to a new life, to a new body. And we can take courage in that. And as Paul, as, as Paul says here, our physical body is being wasted away. But what's he say? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our inner man, that which is my wife and I try to teach our kids, that which makes us us. You know, our bodies do not make us us. It's our soul, it's our spirit that will last forever. That's what makes us who we are. That will last forever. And if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that inner man is being renewed day by day. Every single day as we walk in faith, as we seek to glorify God in everything that we do, as we read his word, as we learn, as we pray, we are being renewed day by day. Think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. What does Paul say? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is that transformation, that renewing of the mind, that changing our mind from what it is to that of the mind of Christ. As we are renewed day by day, looking not from the temporal, not from what's here on earth, but casting our gaze upon him. Casting our gaze upon Jesus Christ and transforming our mind to his. Becoming more like him. Putting off the new man and putting on the new. As we, day by day as we put off that old man, as we kill the sin that is in us, as John Owen said, be at it always whilst you live. Be actively killing sin or sin will be killing you. That is a day-by-day struggle. And as you read Romans chapter 7, you notice that that is a struggle that the Apostle Paul himself fought every single day. And that is a fight that we must be active in. It's not a passive, I'll sit back and God just, you know, fill me and I'll just kick back and let you do your work. Yes, it is God working in us, but it is a fight that we must be active in combating that sin which lives in our lives, renewing our mind to the mind of Christ day by day. See, the, the, Paul describes, and I, I love this here, Paul describes his affliction in these verses as light and momentary. He was in prison multiple times, shipwrecked three times, beaten Whipped with, the, uh, whipped with whips 39 times, 40, mi- you know, 40 minus 1. Stoned, left for dead. That's light and momentary. What are our sufferings like compared to that? And we think they're bad. Somebody looked at, you know, somebody flipped me off because I have a, a Christian bumper sticker on my car as I drove down the road. Wow. Think of what he suffered, and that was light and momentary. And the reason it's light and momentary is not because he was focused on the suffering that he was experiencing in this world, but because he was focused on eternity. Because he was focused on that which is yet to come, not what is here and right now. See, Paul... Paul described his, uh, his suffering. Another way that you can say is his suffering was easy to bear. His suffering was easy to bear. This light momentary affliction was easy to bear. Sometimes it makes me kind of need to reexamine my life and go, what am I complaining about? What right do I have to complain about it? 
And ultimately, if you think about it, what is complaining? Complaining is saying, God, I have no clue what you're doing, but I know better. This is not how it's supposed to be, God. I was not supposed to get a flat tire today. I was not supposed to get laid off from work today. I know better than you do. I know that's something that I struggle with. Con- that, that, that sinful old man constantly wanting to put myself on the throne of my life and say, this is the way it should be, God. I know better. But Paul said that these things are easy to bear. I mean, all these things. He went through riots. He went through imprisonments, beatings, near death. In fact, some people actually do, do say, and I, I would side land on this, that Paul actually did die. And that's when he was caught up into the third heaven and had his vision of heaven. And those were light and momentary. And the reason that they're light and momentary is because of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we can say it is light and momentary. See, the early church fathers also understood this. Justin Martyr uh, once wrote a defense of Christianity to the emperor, to the Roman emperor. And this is what he wrote. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. That's exactly what they did. They beheaded in Rome in 167. That's why, and actually his name wasn't Justin Martyr, his name was Justin, and he was martyred. That's how he got the name Justin Martyr. Basil the Great uh, was once threatened by the Emperor Valens. They threatened him to confiscate all his possessions, to torture him, to kill him. And here's what Basil the Great said to the Emperor. All that I have you can confiscate are these rags and a few books. Nor can you exile me. For wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. As to tortures, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ. And death would be a great boon to me, leading me sooner to God. Oh, that we could respond like that. Oh, that we could respond like that. You see, the trials that have been experienced throughout the history of the Christian church as Paul says here, they are what? They are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. The afflictions that we suffer here now are preparing us for our future glorification with God. How does that happen? Well, see, as we suffer here, and I can, I can personally attest to this, after losing my son, I'm now just that much more detached from this world, anxious to go and be with him again. And the more we suffer here, the more we look to what we have coming in the future. Think about what what were some of the, the songs that the slaves sung in the South while they're picking cotton? Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. That's not just a a great folk song. They were singing about the future glory in heaven. 
That's what they were singing about. So the more we suffer here, the more detached from this world and the grippings and the entrapments and the possessions of this world we become. We start looking to our future in heaven. James in James 1 and 2 instructed his people to rejoice in their suffering. Not just it's preparing us for glory, but rejoice when you suffer. Why? Because the result of our trials and our suffering, it is perfecting the work of sanctification in our lives. The more you suffer, the more usually and should be, the more sanctified you become. And I know this when when we did lose our son. I was talking to our youth pastor, talking to Greg, and I told him, I said, you know, I've believed in the sovereignty of God for, for several years. Been a Christian for many, but was not on the right side of theology that entire time. I've believed in the God, sovereignty of God for several years. But it's not until something like that happens, when you have to live day by day according to that faith and walk it out in your daily life, it becomes insanely real to you. When I have to live the sovereignty of God, not just speak the sovereignty of God. When I have to actually say, Lord, I know you did this for a reason and you are sovereign, it is not out of your control. Even through the pain and the hurt. And it is only through going through that experience that I could grow closer to him. So does that mean that it's easy, the suffering that we have in this world? No. It doesn't mean it's easy at all. Does it hurt? Yeah, absolutely it hurts. Does it mean that we should be happy when we go through suffering? No. Paul doesn't tell the Philippians to be happy always. What's he tell them? Rejoice always. You see, Joy and rejoicing is a condition of the heart. It is an attitude of the heart that has absolutely nothing to do with the circumstances that you are going through. Happiness deals with the circumstances. I'm happy that, you know, some football team won the football game. Has absolutely no bearing on my joy because my joy does not come from that football team. My joy does not come from my job. My joy does not come from my kids. My joy comes from Jesus Christ. And that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That is where my joy is found. And that has absolutely nothing to do with the circumstances. So, yes, we can be joyful and sad at the same time. And see, one reason as we look to our future, Revelation 21, 1 through 5 uh, because of time I'm going to cut down. Uh, in verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. See, in the future, in our glorification, in our glorified bodies in heaven, there is no more death. There is no more pain. It's gone. 
And this world, a new heaven and a new earth will be created as it was intended to be before Adam's sin. And there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. And so it's because of this, we cannot, we can not lose our perspective in life. See, anything this world can do, it's going to be gone. It's going to be momentary. But the joy of Jesus Christ lasts forever. See, Paul said in verse 17, that's preparing us for a glory beyond all comparison. And as I was looking at this and studying the Greek, I loved how Paul writes this. Because Paul, when saying that it's beyond all comparison, the, the Greek word for, for beyond comparison is hyperbolein. Paul doesn't just use it once. He uses it twice. So it's beyond comparison what you could even com- beyond comparison. So whatever you can think of that you can't compare, it's even beyond that. This is, this is so mind-blowing that we can't even conceive of what our future glory is going to be while we're in this body here on earth. See, Paul used the same word to describe God's surpassing power in verse 7 when he wrote, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's the same word, that surpassing power. And if you think, what's God's surpassing power? You can't compare it to anything because it's above everything. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. That's the same word that Paul uses here. The glory we will experience in heaven is beyond anything we could ever even come close to imagining here on earth. And that is what waits for us. Because that is what waits for us, we do not lose heart. Because that is what waits for us. Everything that happens here, no matter how bad it is, is light and momentary. Because our, what waits for us is eternal. What happens here is inconsequential. One commentator, I loved how he, how he uh, described this. He compared the, you know, when you contrast the beyond comparison glory that awaits for us to the storms and the afflictions we suffer here. He, can, he says it's like the storms and afflictions we suffer in this life are like a, a storm and a little tiny teacup. You know, that, that's, that's the picture. It's, it's just this little teeny tiny thing. While we're going through it, it may not seem teeny tiny, but in the weight of eternal glory, it's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. And see, because Paul describes this future glory as eternal, it will not stop. It will not pass away. It will continue forever. And see, the glory that we experience, yes, it is the glory of heaven, Yes, heaven is a wonderful physical location. Paul describes, you know, uh, John, I'm sorry, John describes it. You know, the streets are paved with gold. The walls are made out of jewels. The pearl, the gates are pearls. But that's not the glory that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about the pavement of gold. He's talking about being in the presence of our God and maker. Standing face to face with Jesus Christ, worshiping him, casting our crowns at his feet. That is the eternal glory that Paul is talking about here. And because of that, we do.
do not lose focus. And notice where Paul is saying that we should be focusing. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. As we turn away from what we can see. As we turn away from those physical, temporal trappings of this world that we can see. You turn away from that. And you turn towards that which we cannot see. The glory of Christ. Jesus Christ, the angels, the seraphim, heaven, those things that we cannot see, that is where our focus is. He's saying don't focus on this temporal. Don't focus on the things of this world. Focus on the things that are yet to come. Focus on the eternal things. That's where we're to focus. That's where we're to spend our time contemplating. See, the, the word for focus can also be to contemplate or to take notice. So we're to contemplate and spend our time thinking about the things of glory, not the things of this world. Are we spending more time thinking about God's word? Or are we spending more time thinking about our job? Are we spending more time thinking about heaven and sanctification and growing our life in Christ? Or are we thinking more about getting that big expensive new house? That brand new Mercedes, or or whatever it is. Where are we spending our time focusing? See, I'm not trying to say that those things are bad, but where is our focus? Is our focus on getting that next thing? J.D. Rockefeller, a long time ago, one of the richest men in his day, one of the richest men in the world, they asked him, how much money is enough? Anybody know what his response was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. See, the things of this world will never never satisfy. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that satisfies that longing. See, everything that we see in this world is fleeting. We're not to focus our attention here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to focus the attention on the eternal because what happens to the stuff here? Moths and rust thieves it's not going to last forever it's laying up our treasures in heaven that will last forever so what everything here as we said before and peter everything here is going to be gone so are we focusing on this world or are we focusing on the next as i said does it mean that having the car the house the job is bad for everybody i'm assuming almost everybody in this room does not get paid to teach the word of god so does that mean we're all in sin because we don't earn a paycheck teaching the word of god no absolutely not because paul tells us whatever you do do to the glory of god so in your job as a computer technician auto salesman attorney doctor whatever it is Do that to the honor and glory of God. uh, John Piper wrote an article one time, and he explained how to drink a glass of orange juice to the glory of God. Think about it. If Paul said everything you do, do to the glory of God, if we're not doing something to the glory of God, then we're in sin. So how do you drink that glass of orange juice to the glory of God? 
a great article. Look it up. See, everything we do, we must do focusing on the eternal, on the gospel, on the glory of God. And that's one of the solas of the Reformation, sola dea gloria. Everything to the glory of God alone. Because then ultimately, if, it's not, if we're doing anything that is not to the glory of God, who is it to the glory of? Probably ourselves. Probably ourselves. I need that brand new Mercedes Jaguar, whatever it is, because I need to look good in front of my peers. I need that 5,000 square foot house on the mountaintop that's, you know, costs millions and millions and millions of dollars because I need to look good. So I need to keep up with the Joneses or the Kardashians or whoever it is. That's not to be our focus. God's glory is to be our focus because everything here one day is going to be gone. So we need to focus on that which lasts forever. That which lasts forever. The souls around us will last forever. So when you have that opportunity to share the gospel, do you take it? Or do you think, I can't do that. I'm nervous. I'm scared. They'll laugh at me. They'll persecute me. They'll name it. And increasingly in this country, that is going to become more and more of a reality when you stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. Particularly when it comes to things like sexual orientation. When we stand up and say, this is what God's word has to say about homosexuality. And people start throwing you in prison because of it. It's happening in Western nations around the world. It's happening in Scotland. It's happening in England. It's happening in Canada. It will eventually happen here unless God has mercy on this nation. Our youth pastor has already told me he's resigned himself that in the next five to ten years he will be in jail because of sharing the gospel. And he's just resigned himself to that fact, and he does it anyway. Just praying that God will have mercy on his family while he is in jail. But that is focusing on the unseen. That is focusing on Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's focusing on the eternal, the eternal soul and the condition of that soul of the people around us. As I said, we will spend eternity in one of two places. There is no third option. Annihilationism is not true. Everybody will spend their eternity in one of two locations. Where are you going to spend eternity? Where are the people around you going to spend eternity? Where are your kids going to spend eternity? That's what we need to be focusing on. Not on the things of this world and the entrapments that can come with it. There are we more concerned with providing the nice house, car, boat, whatever it is for our kids, giving them the things of this world? Or are we more concerned about giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ? When they see you, do they see somebody who is concerned with the gospel? Do they see you as parents, mom and dad, do they see you reading the word of God? Both to them and for you. Do they see you studying the word of God? Or do they see you studying the Wall Street Journal to make money in the stock market? 
Where do they see you focusing your time? Do they see you on your knees in prayer? Or do they see you on your knees working? What example are we setting for our kids? That is focusing on the unseen. When we give them that example, when we spend time in prayer, when we spend time in the Word, that's focusing on the unseen. We need to be doing that. See, those who are experiencing hardships, doesn't matter what it is, physical, financial, suffering, persecution, doesn't matter. We can rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ because through his blood on the cross, our names can be written in the Lamb's book of life. Correction, those who have repented, their names are already there from before the foundation of the world. Are you preaching the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel with those around you, with your children, with your coworkers, with your family? Telling them about the gospel of Jesus Christ so that their names may be found there as well. Charles Spurgeon once was asked that, you know, why he preached the gospel if he believed in the election of God and that the names of the Lamb's Book of, were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, why he preached to everybody. And Spurgeon's response was, well, if every person who was elect had a stripe painted down their back, I'd quit preaching and just go around picking up shirt tails. See, fact is, we don't know who the elect are. It's not our job to figure that out. It's our job to be the sower of the seed. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to prepare the soil to receive it. In the parable of the, soil, of, of the sower, Jesus didn't cast any responsibility on the growth of that seed at the feet of the sower. The sower simply scattered the seed. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings the conviction in the lives and brings the regeneration. So are we taking the time to make a difference by sharing the gospel in the lives of those around us? Think, what opportunities do you have to share the gospel? Maybe you have something going on in your life that would bring you in the path of people that you normally wouldn't have to be in the path of. A couple weeks ago, I spent an entire week in Seattle Children's. I had a different nurse and doctor coming into the room every single day. And a couple of the times, I was able to share the gospel. One time, it was really encouraging. The gal who was in the room with me was a Christian. And I found, and, and I asked her a question, you know, leading into sharing the gospel if she wasn't. I asked her a question. I said, if I was laying in this bed and I only had a couple hours to live, what hope would you give me? What could you tell me to give me hope? And she gave me a pretty good explanation of the gospel. But then she ended it with, but I'm not really sure what to do about the only couple hours to live because we're, supposed, we're commanded to follow Christ. But if you're going to die in two hours, how can you obey that command since you don't have time to follow? And she don't, I found out she'd only been a Christian for a couple months. And so I was very encouraged with that question. Because this is a great question. And I was able to point her to the thief on the cross. And what did Jesus tell the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me in paradise. He was dead a couple hours later. So I was able to share with her and teach her the difference between justification, sanctification, and glorification. Because she hadn't heard or been taught 
that difference. So it was very encouraging. But if you don't open your mouth when you're in front in a doctor's office when a nurse is coming in or at work or wherever it may be, if you don't take that opportunity to share the gospel, you don't have those opportunities. You won't ever have those conversations with people. You may see somebody come to Christ. You may not. Our youth pastor has been going to the high school in Eagle River uh, on every Friday. He takes a dozen tacos with him, and he goes and he talks about the gospel and shares the gospel. He's been doing it for, I think it's five years now. Not one person has ever said, I've placed my faith in Christ because of what you did. But he does it every single Friday. And faithfulness to God, regardless of the outcome, because that's what we've been called to do. We've been called to focus on the eternal, not on the temporal. We've been called to go and make disciples. Baptizing them, teaching them. That is what our command is. Are we fulfilling our command? When we talk about believers, are we speaking truth of the word of God into the lives of other believers? When we see a believer in sin, do we go to them and say, look, this is what the word of God says about what you're doing. This is wrong. You need to repent of that. Are we encouraging each other? As Paul wrote earlier, when we suffer, we are comforted by God. Do we then turn around and comfort others? Are we speaking the truth of the word into their lives? Are we allowing the word to be spoken into our lives by others? If brother or sister comes to you and says, look, what you just did or what you've been doing for the last month, year, whatever it is, according to scripture, that is wrong. That is a sin. Are we willing to stop and examine what they're saying and examine the word of God and examine our lives? Are we willing to accept that correction? That is focusing on the unseen. That is working on our sanctification. That is what we are commanded to do. And see, because of all this, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Because Christ is faithful, he will raise us from the dead. Because of the eternal weight of glory, because of what is yet to come, is nothing in comparison to what we have here. Because of the glory of Christ, the sufferings of this world are nothing. Are we focusing on that eternal glory, or are we focusing here? Are we spending our time, money, energy, and effort on the eternal, or are we spending it on the temporary? My hope and prayer is for myself and for you that we focus and spend our time, energy, effort, energy on the eternal and focus on Jesus Christ and focus on the glory that we will experience with him in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you will bring to completion the promises that you have given to us in your word. That not one of them will fall to the ground. But you will fulfill every single promise you have given. 
We thank you for the comfort that you give us when we do walk through trials. And Father, that you are preparing us for that weight of glory, for the glory that we will experience with you when we are face to face with you in our glorified bodies. Lord, I ask that you'd give us the strength to focus on the eternal, that you would give us the endurance to run the race that is set before us, and that we would keep our eyes focused on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name.